Hello, and welcome to the Understanding Autism podcast, where we talk about issues related to those in the autism and greater neurodiverse community. I'm your co-host, Brett Thayer. And I am Nicole Kabilis. In today's episode, we are going to talk about the link between autism and phobias. We'll cover what phobias are, the causes of phobias and how they relate to autism, the categories of phobias, how people cope with phobias, and how to overcome a phobia if you have autism. All right. So in typical teacher fashion, we are going to define our terms first. What is a phobia? So according to John Hopkins Medicine, defines phobia as uncontrollable, irrational, and lasting fear of a certain object, situation, or activity. This fear can be so overwhelming that a person may go through great lengths to avoid the source of that fear. All phobias are anxiety disorders, specifically related to PTSD and panic disorders. And according to the National Institute of Mental Health, more than 10 million U.S. adults have at least one phobia. So the question is, how do the causes of phobias relate to autism? All right. According to the Organization of Autism Research, as many as 84% of children with autism spectrum disorder experience significant fear or anxiety that interferes with their daily lives, including frequent, debilitating, and unusual fears. Because people with autism experience anxiety and overwhelm at an elevated rate, which we know, compared to neurotypical people, they are likely, highly likely to develop a phobia. All right, so the next set of information is coming from mind.org. So a lot of information to provide to you. Um, they talk about phobias in and root causes of phobias. Okay, so one root cause of phobias, according to mind.org, is past, past incidents or trauma. Uh, they define that as an isolated or repetitive episode of interacting with an object that created fear or discomfort. For example, a person might develop a fear of balloons if they get spooked by the sound of a balloon popping at their ear at a party. People with autism have that increased sense of sensory intolerance, right? So they might spookily easily, and so this becomes this kind of traumatic experience where they may develop a phobia from that um, where other people may consider this as a harmless act, right? Um, Another source is experiencing long-term chronic stress. This is when a person is put in a stressful situation that they cannot control for a long period of time. This can create a phobia of re-entering that type of situation again. So people with autism experience chronic anxiety, emotional overwhelm, and sensory overstimulation. This can be considered an experience of long-term chronic stress that makes them avoidant of these various triggers. People with autism that are germophobic in another example, most likely experienced extreme sensory discomfort and routine disruption from being sick. Another cause is learned responses from early life. The phobia occurs from a close family member that also has a strong phobia around something or intense fear, and in this case, the child learns to be afraid of something by their caregivers or relatives. The child with autism is conditioned to avoid things that a parent fears or a sibling and willingly goes along with it as a way to reduce overwhelming stimuli in the environment. Right? Another cause is genetics. Just like autism can have genetic roots, the likelihood to develop phobias can be based on unique cognitive processes. A person with autism might develop triphobia, a fear of irregular patterns, clusters, bumps, or small holes, for example. Brett, because Brett, just to clarify, that's pronounced tryptophobia. 
Thank you. Yeah. Because the autistic brain prefers predictable patterns, routine, and order. Any visual disruption or visual overwhelm of a large pattern object can create fear based in the way of the autistic brain processes and what it sees in front of it. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the neurology of how phobias work. When a frightening sensory stimuli occurs, information about that stimuli travels through a double pathway in the brain. One pathway leads to the amygdala, which is the part of the brain that detects fear responses and activates somebody to run away. This fear response happens in one one thousandth of a second. That's pretty quick and it's super unconscious. The other pathway is towards the prefrontal cortex, which is responsible for rationalizing the danger of the stimuli. This pathway is slower and gets overridden by the amygdala. This is why a phobia can seem irrational. The amygdala is having a fight or flight reaction to a triggering stimuli, overriding the rational deduction from the prefrontal cortex. This is also why phobias can be hard to overcome. Two things we can learn about this information to deeper understand autism and phobias. An overstimulated autistic brain will develop a highly activated amygdala if they experience high sensitivity towards various sensory stimuli. When a person is overwhelmed, they are less likely to rationalize why they are overwhelmed or convince themselves that the stimuli is threatening. A person is less likely to understand why their phobia occurs if they have an undiagnosed autism uh, status or are masking their autism. And even if a person with autism is able to rationalize why they have a phobia, it might be done in a way that doesn't make sense to a uh, neurotypical person. And I will say this really quick. Our next episode is going to be about emetophobia, the fear of vomiting, which is what I have. And I guess I've always lived my life trying to control physiological struggles with the power of my mind. And, uh, and so when it comes to a phobia, I always try to overcome the phobia by doing like practical rationalization. And it just doesn't work. It's like your mind and your body are fighting each other. Um, so the rationalization process I think in some ways can be helpful, but it's not going to 100% mm -hmm. help you to overcome your phobia because as we talked about earlier, no matter how much work the prefrontal cortex is putting in, the amygdala mm -hmm. has a, a stronger reaction and it takes a lot longer for it to calm down. And it's just not a rational part of the brain. And that, that makes sense. The way you describe it is like your mind is fighting with itself. Right. You have the rational uh, part and the emotional part. Right. So, like it's like you know, rationally fighting itself. Yeah. But there's, you know, the amygdala is, is a center of your brain that has to do with emotions. Right. So mm -hmm. there's there's a, a sense that I know I shouldn't be afraid of this. You know, this seems silly. And yet your body response. Right. And, you know, we could talk philosophy and mind body connection you know, and what that exists like. But. Um, the, there's a, there's this core reaction that says, nope, my, you know, my body is telling me something else. I'm definitely afraid of this or whatever it happens to be. So yeah, that's, it's just that, a really, it's a super interesting connection between those two. Yeah. And I, and I think that that totally explains like if, if a neurotypical person or somebody who doesn't have a phobia comes up to the person with the phobia and is like, oh, you're overreacting and all you need right, to do right. is this one thing and it's not a big right. deal. And right. I think the person with the phobia knows that and they don't want to be locked into that fear state, but that's mm -hmm. just where they are. 
in their development. Right. And and right. not I say development, I guess I mean more uh, the healing journey of the phobia. Absolutely. Yeah. So categories of phobias, there are specific phobias, such as a fear of a specific object or situation. And some of the examples are animals, such as dogs, insects, snakes, the natural environment, such as heights, water, darkness, storms, or germs, specific situations, such as flying, going to the dentist, tunnels, small spaces, doing mm -hmm. math homework, uh, body processes, which could be the fear of blood, vomit, needles and injections, choking, surgery, mm -hmm. and then, uh, you know, hyper-specific objects such as balloons, clowns, shiny objects, pomegranates. Um, and yeah. then there are complex phobias, which are a fear of a specific object or situation that is more debilitating with a larger scale, frequently occurring trigger. There mm -hmm. are two types. Uh, one is a social phobia, which is an intense fear of social situations such as talking in groups, public speaking, right. talking on the phone, meeting new people, starting conversations, talking to a person in authority, eating or drinking in front of others, running errands, and going to work. There's the fear of being scrutinized or judged while performing a task in public. People with autism uh, tend to have a high level of social anxiety. And mm -hmm. a lot of websites say that social phobia and social anxiety disorder are the same thing. And then... The other type of complex phobia is called agoraphobia, which is anxiety about places or situations that could be difficult to get out of, could be embarrassing to get out of, or prevent you from getting help. Mm -hmm. So that can involve fear of everyday situations such as being alone, being in open spaces, being in a crowd of people, using public transportation, or going to a large enclosed space such as a store. So the yeah. way that I look at it is um, specific phobias you know, I think body processes might really impact somebody being so afraid that they never want to leave uh, their residence. But mm -hmm. I would say like, you know, most people handle specific phobias by just making the decision to avoid those types of things as much as they possibly right. can. And yep, some sense. are, some are easier than others. Complex phobias are just part of daily living. Mm -hmm. um, we're constantly interacting with people. We're constantly going into environments where it may feel difficult to escape. And so when it comes to complex phobias, it makes sense to me that that could trigger somebody to just be walled up and, and closed yes. off from the world. Um, right. And, and I do wonder, outside, yeah. yeah. And then I wonder sometimes like, you know, if you, I think about like my own experience with a fear of vomiting, um, you know, if I throw up in public, that mm -hmm. can trigger a fear of, you know, how do I get out of a situation if, I, if I'm afraid I'm going to throw up in public? And if I do throw up in public, how are people going to respond? And so right, that fear right. of vomiting then reinforces the agoraphobia part of phobia yep, and yep. then the social phobia part of the emetophobia. And so, mm -hmm. you know, it, I, they really feed off of each other. So I wonder how much right. the social phobia and the agoraphobia are really core parts of maybe some of the more specific phobias. Mm -hmm. Or yeah, everything kind of links together and it just creates more complexity with things. Yeah.
Okay, so let's talk about um, how people cope with phobias. So this comes from the Emetophobia Workbook. Three major factors that influence how people deal with phobias. Okay, one is locus of control, right? The person with the phobia will do everything in their power to avoid triggering the stimuli at all costs, even if it compromises the quality of their lives. For more control they have, the more secure that they feel, hence never wanting to go outside. Confronting the trigger will create a loss of control. People with phobias put their power in external locus of control. Power is the external environment to determine safety. And to overcome a phobia, power needs to go into the internal locus of control, right? Power comes from the internal resources that we have to manage what occurs externally. All right, another factor, self-esteem. The belief that the person is capable of handling the consequences of interacting with the trigger. So, for example, fear of spiders. The person can hold the spider knowing that they are not in danger. If they are, they know what to do about it. People with phobias develop a mindset that they are incapable of dealing with the trigger, especially if the trigger causes a fear of death. Another example, social anxiety. The fear of being around people when the trigger causes panic, especially if that causes judgment, alienation, or bullying. And in this subcase is like fear of vomiting, like you were talking about, throwing up in front of other people. That can be very traumatic. Um, people who don't have phobias might believe that the fear is ir irrational and judge the person with the phobia, claiming that they really have nothing to fear. So all of three of these factors heavily impact people with autism. Because people with autism are constantly overstimulated and deal with high degree of anxiety, having control over the external environment is very important. Also, the autistic need for control, predictability, and routine makes it even more difficult to deal with the phobia. Also, in relation to being in a constant state of overwhelm and anxiety, people with autism struggle to develop a sense of resilience through adversity when faced with a trigger. And finally, people with autism have a huge amount of anxiety in social situations. A phobia can make that social intensity worse. So we're going to have a link to the Emetophobia workbook. And I, I have to say that this, this book really helped me to understand why my phobia does what it does and also helping me to have a little more assurance that just facing the fear isn't going to be enough. Um, I can tell you I have thrown up. Throwing up doesn't necessarily help me overcome my fear of vomiting. Uh, the root causes really are locus of control, self-esteem, and social anxiety. So when I was mm -hmm. initially reading these points, I was like, how are they not talking about this connection between phobias and autism? And especially um, emetophobia specifically, I don't know. You know, it's like I would, I would search it, not necessarily because I needed the support, but I just mm -hmm. kind of wanted to hear... Uh, what the correlation was or right, autistic right. people talking about their own experiences with phobias. And there's very few resources out there that really talk about that connection. And so it was one of the reasons that I felt very passionate to mm -hmm. talk about the connection between autism and phobias on the podcast, because all three of these issues, whether or not an autistic person has a phobia, right. I can right. guarantee you autistic people have issues with locus of control. They have issues with self-esteem and they have issues mm -hmm. with social anxiety. So if those issues Absolutely. are already there, that's going to amplify having a phobia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. So speaking of which, let's talk, 
let's talk about how to overcome a phobia if you have autism. Um, now, as I said before, I do have personal experience with it. In our next episode, I'm going to talk a lot more extensively about my own journey with it. What we're going to talk about in this section is just general recommendations um, right. from, you know, online resources, as well as just kind of my personal perspective on mm -hmm. what can work best. When it comes to a caregiver, the root cause of a phobia is not irrational and should be taken seriously and sympathetically. Do not make the person with autism feel bad for having a phobia. What I noticed, uh, you know, in talking to other people with autism and reflecting on my my own journey, and and again, like I'm not trying to villainize caregivers. I'm not trying to villainize parents. I think parents are just constantly fatigued by their child just constantly being in distress. And so mm -hmm. I, when I think about it, I think parents start out trying to be sympathetic and patient, but when it's like every day or sometimes twice a day and you know, you're getting that short fuse and you, you know, that neurotypical caregiver knows that this person is just overreacting and catastrophizing about something that's not really dangerous, or right. it's something that's heavily compromising uh, what the family needs to do, right? Right, and, and, it, so, and, and it's easily dismissed by neurotypical people. I, but I think that it, it, in defense of the neurotypical caregivers, I think it happens because maybe you don't understand the psychology of a phobia oh, and you're sure. just burned out. You know, you're burned out having to deal yes. with a child that's constantly overwhelmed, mm -hmm, feeling like mm -hmm. you don't have the answers or right. you try something. Uh, I mean, you know, I'll speak as an adult, um, you know, working with my parents and my husband, like sometimes they try to help, but I'm just perseverating and yeah. they just get to the point where it's not even like they're at, exasperated or mad at me. They're just like, I don't know where to go from here. Mm -hmm. And no, sure. phobias, phobias are really tricky um, because I, I think that there's a variety of professional support that you need to mm -hmm. address a phobia. And, you know, even with neurotypical people that have phobias, they can be yes. really extreme. They can mm -hmm. be very, they can have a very huge impact on quality of life. And, yes, absolutely. you know, I, I think those neurotypical support members just pull their hair out. Like, what do I do to get this person to not be so scared? Right. That impacts um, their quality of life, like you were saying. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I will say this too, you know, I'm trying to remember, I think my husband is tryptophobia. He, and, and that's the, the fear of like, say pomegranates or honeycomb, like very small patterned objects. Now that's not a phobia that I personally understand. Um, right. you know, but I'm not going to come up to him and be like, oh, you know, you're reacting over nothing. And I'm not going to say caregivers do this, but like one thing I've experienced and I know other people have too, it's like when a neurotypical person, especially like a sibling or a peer finds out the person has a phobia, what do they do? Oh, I know you have a fear oh, they, of pomegranate. Yeah. So then they go grab a pomegranate, they shove it in it, their yes. face. Oh, for sure they do. You know, uh, I mean, I can't tell you how many times like people have come up to me like pretending to be sick and throw up just to get a over dramatic Great. reaction out of me. And sometimes like awesome. I'm in on the joke, but at the same time, it's also like right. extremely frustrating because 
that the people around you really don't understand how serious and debilitating that anxiety is. And, mm-hmm. and when there's impatience or there's this like, just get over it attitude or even worse, like, I don't know. And I think some caregivers do this too, where it's like, they think, oh, all this person needs to do is just like be forced into the situation that causes their fear. That's not how it works. Um, exactly and the not, more yeah, that you do that, not only will it reinforce the phobia, but it's mm-hmm. also going to create a lack of trust. It's going to increase that social anxiety. And right. the last thing that people with autism or anybody with phobias want is a caregiver that can't be a support person or somebody that can right. ground them when they really genuinely feel unsafe. Mm-hmm. Um, I so I think a big thing that caregivers can do, and we've talked about this with autism in general, just have a conversation about what does it feel like? And, and just getting a deeper understanding with the, the person with the phobia, having a voice of just discussing like why this is so hard. What sort Mm -hmm. of help does this person need? Um, And I think that we need to be delicate and empathetic uh, when addressing a phobia, just like how we would addressing autism. We don't want to enable, but we also don't want to be so direct and and, uh, blunt with with the denial and the uh, forcibility of them getting over it. Um, that right. that it's just going to um, make the person with the phobia just more resentful and fearful. Absolutely. Yeah. So when it comes to the person with autism, research how autism experiences correlate, correlate to the phobia and cause the phobia to begin with. A person that deals with chronic anxiety and overwhelm is more likely to develop a phobia. This can impact other forms of autism support such as having a sensory diet. And this is especially a good idea for a person diagnosed with autism later in life. Um, And another thing that I would recommend is, you know, go on YouTube or research books, um, not necessarily on like advice on how to overcome that phobia, but just to hear stories Mm. from people. I, I will say, you know, not not that I've connected with a lot of people with emetophobia. Um, I have connected with two other individuals that had emetophobia. One was neurotypical and one was autistic. And there's something very cathartic about saying, wow, I'm not alone in dealing with this. And you really do feel alone dealing with the phobia. And so um, I think it can be really helpful to talk to people and say, how do you think this started? you know, what are the things you've done to cope? Where are you in your healing journey? What resources helped? Um, another thing that can help as well, like I remember there was a book that had come out and it was written by a neurotypical woman with a metaphobia and her phobia was very serious. And it was to the point where uh, it was impacting her role as a parent. It was impacting her ability to leave the house. Like it was extremely debilitating. And if think about a fear of vomiting, which really correlates to a fear of germs, you just end up being afraid of the world around you. So then you don't want to leave your place, but then you, you live with people that are constantly bringing in those triggers of fear. So it's like, you never escape it. And And throw COVID COVID on top of all that. (laughs) Well, I mean, not that COVID, uh, caused vomiting, but no, but it's a fear of germs, right? 
Oh yeah. I mean, you know, when I was in college, when there was, um, when there was like a flu that went around, I mean, mm -hmm. I, I was like, I'm going to go stay in a hotel. Like it was that oh, wow. bad. And I remember just like, like walking around campus and looking at people and not that I could tell they were sick or not and just shaking because I mm. just felt so vulnerable, um, wow. to, 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 you know, witnessing somebody throw up or, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or being somebody that got sick. Right. But, you know, all this being said, I guess hearing different stories, hearing like, oh, I guess I'm not that bad. Like I've never been the type of person with my right. phobia where it negatively impacted my ability to leave my house. Hmm. Um, and so I think that for me personally, reading other stories, you know, it, it at least told me like, okay, I'm grateful that my phobia isn't that debilitating, but then right. also reading these autobiographies and seeing how much progress people make from very severe reactions to, you know, Absolutely. engaging in yeah. life, um, mm -hmm. that can be very inspirational when it comes to that process of, um, overcoming a phobia. And, and another thing too, is like, you know, talking to people, especially when it comes to exposure of like what they do that works and doesn't work. Um, mm. and I, I guess it's something I'll, I'll cover in next episode, but right. I think that, you know, by reading these stories and, and seeing how people respond, seeing like, did it work? Did it not? It, mm -hmm. it does help you to make choices along your journey of maybe I want to try that or, Ooh, yeah, I don't feel comfortable with that. Um, yeah. To give you a, one really quick example, I guess when it comes to me overcoming vomiting or, or being comfortable with the experience of throwing up, I I would rather let nature take its course. Like if I have morning sickness when I'm pregnant or when I get mm. the flu, uh, mm -hmm. I guess I feel more comfortable with that being a way for me to overcome my phobia rather than you know, sticking my fingers down my throat and forcing myself to throw up or taking, yeah. um, Epicac, which is, it's a, a chemical or some, some liquid you take that induces vomiting. Now, right. other people are more comfortable with that approach because they feel like they have control mm. over, you know, when it occurs and, and the induction of it. And then there are some people who, uh, you know, they'll, they'll face their fear of vomiting by getting blackout drunk because uh, they're inebriated, they're having a good time. Um, you know, so I think I, I'm not in a position to say what's right or wrong. Obviously, you want to make sure that you're safe. You don't want to black out drunk and then choke on your vomit for sure. Um, right. But I guess it's it's all to say that um, you read these stories, you hear what works for people, what doesn't, what might backfire, and then mm. it helps you to kind of find yourself and say, okay, this works for me. This doesn't work for me. And right. just like how, you know, autism is a spectrum, you know, phobias are a spectrum and mm -hmm. no one treatment for a phobia works for everybody. Um, right. and I think again, you know, being able to read those stories can help you find those intuitive cues within yourself to carve out what that natural journey looks like for you. And also the pace, you know, um, Maybe one day you can handle, you know, not inducing yourself to throw up. Like maybe right, you right. can get the flu, but you're not ready now. And mm -hmm. and you don't need to rush that process. Right. Um, 
Anyway, overcoming a phobia, as I said before, it is a very slow process and that might require multiple types of therapy. There isn't a perfect solution that works for everybody. And I think one of the myths about overcoming a phobia from like a neurotypical perspective or just somebody who doesn't have a phobia is like, they think that it's going to be an instant fix. Like if you have a fear of heights, oh, you just take them to the top somewhere, go skydiving, like that right, it's right. just going to be instantly cured from one thing or, right. oh, I'm just going to watch a bunch of YouTube videos and, and this is what's going to fix it. I would say I've had my phobia probably consciously since I was like eight or nine. I'm 32. And mm. I would say probably in the last 12 years, maybe 13 to 15 years, um, I've been very intentional about making decisions to overcome my phobia. And it, it really has taken that long uh, trying out different things. And it doesn't mean that the therapy just doesn't work. Like, oh, I tried this and mm. it didn't work. Oh, I tried this and it no, didn't right. work. Yeah, yeah. Um, I get that. I look, I look at a phobia as like chipping away at the fear. Mm. And you are making steps, but they're, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, different types of, uh, different types of resources. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I mean, I'm going to talk about this in next episode, but I, I tried a lot of different things to overcome my phobia and, and it takes time. And, and I yeah. think a, a very important factor of overcoming a phobia is the perspective of age. Um, you know, yes. my understanding of vomiting as a 32 year old adult is very different than my understanding of it when I was eight years old. Yeah, and so sense. sometimes, uh, and that's why I really feel like it's that chipping away, um, mm -hmm. because you, you start gathering more resources when you're adult and you, you're just figuring out ways that make sense to you that catch up with your brain development. So it, it, it takes a while, but that doesn't mean that it's bad. And it doesn't right. mean that you're not making progress. Mm-hmm. Um, and Absolutely. I think that that's important for parents, caregivers, spouses um, to recognize is as long as that person is making choices um, to move forward, they will move forward. But it's not the, it's, at their own pace, at their own pace. Yes. And I can guarantee you it is not an overnight process. Making it an overnight process is just going to make the phobia worse. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So some resources that can help. Uh, one of them is talk therapy, discuss the root causes of phobia, um, from mind.org and see which one relates to your phobia trigger. And it, it might be more than one trigger. And then, um, you know, in reference to the emetophobia workbook, discuss the three factors of coping with emetophobia, which is locus of control, self-esteem, and social anxiety. Talk about how each one could be strengthened to deal with resilience. We talked about this in our episode about low frustration tolerance, which, you know, mm -hmm. that's another factor um, right. of a phobia. But, it, you know, dealing with a phobia is about building a window of tolerance. I think we also talked about this in our sensory processing disorder episode. Um, and I, I look at it as tiered. So you have, um, if you look at a phobia, you know, if you take fear of vomiting and breaking right. down every single sensory experience of that phobia. What parts of it are you comfortable with? Mm -hmm. What parts um, maybe feel 
a little bit edgy, but something that you feel like you're willing to face. And then what parts are like, uh, uh, like I'm not going there. Um, for example, if I take vomiting, like, you know, maybe that person cannot handle a live experience of, you know, somebody throwing up or themselves getting sick. Maybe they can't handle uh, a YouTube video of that happening, but maybe they can handle looking at a still image of a photograph uh, or just reading the word vomit, Um, you know, reading Mm -hmm. about a a character getting sick in a movie, Um, you know, so, so there are tears and I think it's right. really important in therapy to empower those little moments where you can say, oh, I can handle this. And, you know, because I think when we get afraid, we think that it's an all encompassing thing. We feel very powerless. So I think a therapist's mm-hmm. job is to be able to break it down into very, very small chunks and, you know, through exposure therapy, just just taking baby steps. And then, right. um, and then I think another important part of the phobia journey is reward yourself. Now, mm-hmm. I think that the reward needs to be a self-driven thing uh, rather than the therapist, because then that can create a lot of trauma associated with like behavior therapy, where it's like, do this behavior, you get a treat. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, there have been times in my life where uh, I don't force myself, I'll just notice uh, that something that used to be really scary and debilitating like five years ago, I can handle. And when I have that moment where I'm mindful of that ability to handle it, and it's not somebody forcing it or somebody like putting me on an agenda, it's really my own autonomy, observing my own journey. Take a moment to reward yourself because overcoming a phobia is very challenging. And I think with any sort of mental health journey or any sort of, you know, adversity in a, in a life journey, reward Mm. yourself every once in a while. Um, I, I remember that when I would experience those things, I'd be like, you know what, uh, you deserve a Starbucks or, Mm. um, you deserve a new book or a comic book or whatever. Um, you know, some rewarding yourself and not sometimes people may use those rewards as motivation to maybe face their fears, but in my opinion, I think it comes from a natural place of showing up rather than forcing yourself right. to, to deal with it for the reward. Mm-hmm. If you can't find a therapist that specializes in phobias, find one that specializes in autism um, because that can help a lot. And then, you know, bring some books about phobias to that therapist if they need some extra resources. Cognitive behavior therapy can also help. Uh, That can help reprogram the thoughts around a phobia. Some people believe that CBT works for people with autism. Others don't because CBT requires abstract thinking, which can be uh, tough for people with autism. The other part uh, about cognitive therapy that can be challenging is what I talked about earlier, where uh, the brain and the body are at war with each other. So I will tell you, like, as somebody who has practiced mindfulness meditation, yoga, positive affirmation thinking for 17 years. Uh, I think it helps, but it's not going to cure it. And I can't tell you like, you know, if I'm 
experiencing digestive discomfort or if I feel nauseous, no amount of positive thinking is helping me to feel regulated when my nervous system is having sensory overwhelm from those experiences. So right. I think it's one part of the equation, but I don't think it's going to solve everything. Um, there are therapy works books for specific phobias, which I think that can be helpful and validating. Um, mindfulness therapy and training is another way where you can help have that better mind body awareness. Um, another thing, you know, that can really help is, uh, uh, let's say that you're on a plane and you're scared of heights, you're scared of flying, you know, being able to practice meditation, being able mm. to just uh, mindfully yes. observe your body, um, that can really help you to stay grounded in the moment. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, bring yourself to slowly, um, calm down or another thing, um, I had an ex-boyfriend who was really uncomfortable with flying. And so he would get a butterscotch candy and he would uh, put it in his mouth. And he said, you know, sucking on the candy, pressing it on the roof of his mouth, like doing something that sort of distracted him. Um, you know, another example would be having a fidget toy. You know, these are all mindfulness tricks that really yeah. help the body ground itself and not perseverate on, you know, what's going to happen. And, and what sort of catastrophe situation is the brain going to come up with? Mm -hmm. And again, you know, the, I, in my experience of overcoming my phobia, all of these things worked for me. It wasn't just exclusively yeah. trying one thing. Each type of treatment tackled one aspect of my phobia. And phobias are complex. So that's that's why I think it's really good to invest in all different types of uh of modalities of therapy. Mm -hmm. um, one of the biggest ones that's helped, I've talked about this a lot in our previous podcast episodes, somatic therapy and craniosacral has changed my life when it comes to my phobias. And, and even when I'm not exactly tackling the phobia itself, maybe I'm just working on my sensory overwhelm, my generalized anxiety, my social anxiety, all of those things still tackle the, the phobia. And in these types of treatments, you're teaching the body to self-regulate in the face of a trigger. And mm. another another part of it is when we when we have chronic sensory overwhelm, when we have a phobia, it's it's like our body is just constantly locked in fear. And sometimes we need a body worker to just teach our body to reach that resting point. Autistic bodies are just not familiar or comfortable about independently getting themselves to that resting place. So, mm -hmm. so sometimes being able to soothe and sedate the nervous system, right. um, that creates more resourcing for overcoming a phobia. Um, there are, are holistic therapies such as Reiki and acupuncture. Again, um, I, I really believe that a good combination of self-reflection, body-based therapy, and mind-based therapy can really help. Um, then there's the topic of exposure therapy, which uh, right, right. It, it is important. A lot of people think that this is the go-to, this is what you need to do to overcome a phobia. I have pretty strong opinions about exposure therapy. You know, as somebody who has tried it myself, um, so there's two ways that you can go through exposure therapy. One way is facilitated with a therapist. 
And the mm -hmm. other way is self-directed. You know, you sit in your bedroom, you pull right. up some online resources, or you induce yourself to interact with that traumatic trigger. Right. Um, exposure therapy in itself is the gradual exposure to the trigger, such as looking at images, watching videos, and actually engaging with the trigger. The mm. goal of exposure therapy is to go slow. And right. I think what a lot of well-minded yet very ignorant um, neurotypical people do, or like I said, it, it's not necessarily, neurotypical people can have phobias as well, but- Which we do. I think that the, the problem is that um, these caregivers will just force them into this situation and they're right. like, you know, all right, you're gonna just go through this experience and you're gonna magically overcome it. But if right. you really Doesn't break happen. down all of the sensory triggers that come with a, a, a phobia, it's an onslaught of it all coming at once. And so that that's just more trauma. And so that's yeah, that why sense. exposure therapy really chunks it, which, you know, neurodiverse people handle really well, really breaking it down into tiny steps mm. and, and then being able to, to develop confidence and a window of tolerance with yeah. each baby step and each little aspect of that sensory experience. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, to give an example, um, you know, one of the things that I'm, I'm struggling with is like, if I have my own child and my child throws up on me. So yes. some strategies for exposure in that sense is, uh, you know, taking a bowl of soup, uh, maybe mixing a little vinegar in it. So it, it smells a little acidic. Mm -hmm. Um, and then spill it on yourself, right. <laughs> um, which sure. I don't know. I mean, like I, I have issues with that because one, like I have an issue with like tactile stuff with clothes. Um, yeah, that makes and sense. so it's, it's like, it's that whole, like, I hate inducing it because like now right. I have to deal with it. And, and honestly, if you have a kid that throws up on you, it's not like you have a change of clothes where you can just go quickly change Correct. you know if, if you have the exposure therapy it's like what are you going to do just pour it on yourself and then you're like oh great and then right, take your right, shirt right. off and you throw it in the laundry and that's that um yeah. if you're if you're in public and that happens you don't have that option yeah so then like there's certain steps like all right now we're looking at the bowl of soup maybe mm -hmm. it looks a little bit like vomit and sure. how does that make you feel you know just just breaking it down making it really slow how does this make you mm -hmm. feel and then, mm -hmm. um, you know, how to, what does the smell like? You mm -hmm. know, um, right. what does it feel like? You know, put your hands in the soup, you know, feel all of the, right, the right, chunks right. of soup in there. How does it make you feel? And then, um, you know, if you're pouring it on yourself, like how much are you doing? Or right. um, is it cold? Is it warm? Um, right. You know, that that's why I think essentially exposure therapy is a sensory diet, uh, which, yes. you know, everybody in the autism community knows about. So mm -hmm. the goal of exposure therapy is to build tolerance for the trigger in bite sized chunks by removing various sensory experiences related to the trigger. Um, right. And that's why, you know, it's really important because maybe there's a lot of anxiety about one aspect of the phobia, but then it's like, oh, well, I know I can handle this part. And then when you have that little bit of confidence that you can handle that part, then you go, okay, 
maybe I can handle this other part. Or you realize like, oh, I went too far. That's all really good data. Um, whereas like if it's all just coming at you at once, you just you have no idea what you can handle and not handle. You don't know right. where your window of tolerance is. Um, now, I think some people will only do exposure therapy and sometimes that works for them. Some people will start with exposure therapy at the beginning of their uh, phobia recovery process. For me personally, I did not get a lot of benefit from doing exposure therapy at the beginning of my healing journey. Um, mm -hmm. Exposure therapy done too soon can reinforce the fear rather than helping you overcome it. So sure. that's why I felt like it was a lot more helpful to have a mindfulness training, have you know some craniosacral work, have some talk therapy, get to the root issues of other topics that maybe aren't directly related to the phobia, but are probably feeding it. Mm -hmm. um, I've noticed that when I do other types of therapy, it actually makes exposure therapy more successful. But again, it, it's kind of a stages sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, right. You know, I remember, uh, you know, I've watched various YouTube videos of people throwing up. And sometimes, you know, at certain stages of my life, it was too much. But then uh, after doing a certain type of therapy, I can watch it now and I'm like, oh, it's fine. But it wasn't okay. the act of watching the vomiting that made me help me overcome right, right. it. It was it was the internal healing I needed to do unrelated to facing right. the fear that then made it more capable for me um, to face that fear. So another example of this, too, I, I read a blog about a guy on the autism spectrum or sorry, he wasn't autistic. He did have a metaphobia and he took Epicac, Episac, I don't know how it's pronounced, as a way to overcome his fear. His mm -hmm. phobia was so strong, it prevented him from throwing up despite taking this chemical wow. that induces vomiting. Yeah, I was blown away that somebody's phobia can be that strong. Right. Um, and the, the guy said it was the worst, most miserable experience I can uh, imagine. because, you know, because he felt sure. like shit. You know, right, you right. want to throw up, but you're so terrified that you're that literally that fight or flight response is doing everything it possibly can to counteract that. So to right. me, that was a really great example of he was not in a stage in his life where exposure therapy was going to do the trick. So that's right. why I think exposure therapy is something that needs to be revisited slowly and over a long period of time. And again, right. you know, uh, that can come in stages like making yourself do something that's actively dangerous uh and and putting your body through right. something maybe you're not right. ready for that maybe it's just a matter of being observer online mm -hmm. or or looking at images or reading books and maybe that's just where you are in your exposure journey right and i i like the idea of um doing some research on your own and and looking into these different therapies um and then deciding which one is best for you yeah yeah, this is actually really interesting. In 2019, researcher Morag uh, Maskey explored using virtual reality to help people with autism overcome their phobias. I didn't know 
that uh, yeah, virtual sure, reality not? could be used for that. Um, sure. Although when I think about emetophobia, I'm like, I mean, VR headsets create motion sickness. So I don't know right. how I feel about it, but it's really cool yeah. that they're using this advanced technology um, to help with that. So yeah, basically, sure, the yeah, so basically the way it works is the person with autism wears a VR headset and engages with the trigger in a in what's called a blue room. The therapist controls how much exposure the person with autism has using an iPad. While the mm. person is in virtual reality, the therapist provides cognitive behavioral therapy techniques to help the person feel calm while facing the trigger. Um, according to the study, it has worked with both children and adults on the autism spectrum. And this is a form of exposure therapy provided in a controlled, predictable, and familiar environment. So mm. for people who, you know, are autistic that really need that sense of uh, structure, control, and predictability, and maybe are mm -hmm. not necessarily ready to force themselves to go through it in real life, maybe this virtual virtual reality approach is super helpful. Right. All right, so let's we've we've gone through different therapies, um, pros and cons, a little bit of each one. So let's talk about our personal experiences with autism and phobias. So Nicole, what has been your experience with phobias? You talked a little bit about um, one particular phobia. Yeah, uh, um, I guess I'm I'm trying not to repeat myself. Um, I mean, right. I, I've talked a lot about uh, my personal experience with it. What what's worked, what hasn't. We're, and, you know, as I've said constantly, we're going to mm -hmm. do a, a significantly deeper dive with it in our next episode. Um, right. What I will also say is, uh, you know, I've met a lot of people with autism that have phobias that I don't have. Um, mm -hmm. I've met neurodiverse people that are not autistic that have um, phobias I don't have. And I've met so, neurotypical yeah. people with, with phobias. So what was, um, on, what was a, a, from your discussions with other people who are on the spectrum, what were some common phobias that you encountered? Uh, germophobia is probably okay. the biggest one. Um, I, I and, and I will say, even though I don't have a fear of like other illnesses besides vomiting, uh, I think people with autism just struggle with being sick because mm. we have so much sensory discomforts and yeah, that makes being sense. sick really incurs a very huge lost sense of control um, in terms of feeling comfortable with ourselves, in terms of the loss of routine. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I'm sure you and I can agree that like we wake up in the morning, we have our to-do list. By the end of the day, we get a fever and our to-do list goes out the window. Right. Um, which, which impacts our stress about getting things done or not getting things done. Yeah, I think, you know, to be honest, I, I haven't, met a person with aut uh, with autism who's successfully overcome a phobia. That doesn't mean that it's impossible for people with autism to overcome. It just means I haven't met people who have come to that place of closure on their journey. And I think that some of the people with autism I met that have certain phobias, they're just picking their battles. You know, they're struggling with social anxiety. They have the adult independence transition stress. They have their phobias. There's a lot going on and it's right. really hard to tackle it at, at once. Um, so, you know, for example, I know somebody who has a major OCD and germophobia and he's on the spectrum and he's dealing with a lot. And so, you know, I think he has his coping mechanisms of how he handles things. 
and uh, and it works for him, you know, mm. as he's trying to face other other struggles that he has. And I think that, uh, again, going back to the caregiver thing, I think good caregivers understand that you just can't tackle all the problems at once. And some problems feed off each other. Um, I think when it comes to a phobia, if you're not at the place where, you know, you're completely overcome it, you want to at least get to the place where you can like leave your house and engage in the world. And that you have those coping... Yeah, and and even if you have, uh, maybe some dysfunctional coping mechanisms, at least you're getting out of the house. At least you're participating in society. At least you're eating. You know, some Mm -hmm. people with emetophobia develop eating disorders because they're so afraid of their relationship with food and how it's going to make them feel. Um, And so, uh. It's just so complicated. I don't I don't know if I've really met anybody with a phobia on the spectrum that has given me advice on like, well, here's what worked for me. Um, yeah. Honestly, I feel like I just learned so much more from talk, you know, observing people online. You rarely mm-hmm. meet people in real life uh, that have those struggles. So. But. I think what I've learned from, you know, talking to people with autism is that most people with autism have or had a phobia. And, uh, and, you know, I think some people maybe acknowledge they have a phobia, but it's so minor, uh, or, or I don't want to say minor, but it's something that maybe they know they're rarely going to experience that they just go, you know, all right, I have this and I'm not necessarily going to do anything about it. Right, right. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, all right. So before we started recording this um, podcast, so uh, we like to talk about your son, Josh, who has autism and he's mm-hmm. a young adult and, you know, what, how he relates to these topics. But, but something that you had mentioned is that you have a neurotypical son who also mm-hmm. has phobias. Yes. Um, so I guess I want to open the conversation rather than focusing on specifically one of your children. I kind of want to talk about both. Um, so okay. what, what, what were your kids experiences with phobias and what support did they use to overcome them? Okay. So, um, Josh's older brother has this fear of germs, which is kind of interesting. Cause we've talked about that. It got to the point where he's just washing his hands all the time. All right. To the point where they're chapping and they're red and, you know, kind of things. And, and, you know, I'm trying to be rational about it. It's like, yeah, it's okay to wash your hands and do this, but all the time, you know, and it, it, it just became a thing. And of course, Josh, you know, the, my autistic child developed that same fear of germs. He says it's from, he doesn't attribute it to his brother. He says it, he attributes it to learning stuff in biology, which is, which is funny. So his um, middle school and and high school experiences in some classes amplified his his fear of germs, which was you know brought on by his brother perhaps, and then it be, then it became a big thing between the both of them, and and those it 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 got to the point where it's like all right you know let's 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 figure this out. So not that um, any specific therapy worked for Brendan or Josh. Um, Brendan is still going through therapy. Josh is in and out of things. Um, but 
he says, Josh says that he's overcome um, the degree to which he's concerned about germs, right? So it's not as bad as it once was. And I think what you were saying about as we grow older, we're, we have better cognitive tools to deal with things. And so he was able to say, yeah, it's not, it's not that big of a deal. Um, what's interesting, though, is he, you know, talking about kind of different fears brought on by um, autism and things like that. So what, he, what he's told me more recently is that he has this fear of he loves zombie movies. Right. And he loves those kinds of things and he loves drawing about it. He's he's going into illustration. So he's drawing all these kind of horror scenes and he's he's loving that. Um, one consequence of that is that he has dreams about fast zombies and then that freaks him out. Right. To the point where like in his dreams, he's like shuddering physically. He has a physical response from these things. So that I thought was an interesting thing. And then my last story, and this is this is me not being a good parent, just saying. So Brendan was in New York for an orchestra trip with his school. And, you know, I didn't go with him. I should have gone with him. This was my neurotypical kid. And so, really quick, you know, how old was Brendan when this happened? 15, 16, 17. Okay. Yeah. No, you just covered the whole range of high school. No, I know. Let me, I'm trying to think. Between it's, the ages of 15 junior, and probably 18. A junior, probably a junior. <laughs> okay. I don't right. think it was a senior trip. I think it was a junior trip. Anyway, so, you know, they're in New York and it's exciting and they're going to play Carnegie Hall. And I'm just, you know, envious of his experiences. Right. And then um, his teacher calls me and he goes, we're all going into the Empire State Building and Brenda doesn't want to go to the top floor. What are we, we going to do? And I go, just make him do it. He'll be fine. Wrong, wrong thing to do. But, you know, at the, if I was there you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. being a good parent is twenty twenty. you know, I would have been, it's like, you know, let's just hang out in the cafe and then just, you know, call us when we're, when you're done and we'll meet up again. Nope. So they didn't have a whole lot of extra chaperones to, you know, supervise my son. So I go, just take him up there. He said, that was a horrible experience. And Brendan, if you're listening to this podcast, I'm very sorry. And I will pay for therapy for, for that phobia. <laughs> so. I laugh about it. I also have a fear of heights. So um, I would have, you know, in my brain, so this is, this is how phobias are different, right? In my brain, I would have done it. I would have forced myself to do it. And I would have, you know, I'm going to conquer this fear, da, 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 right? Not everybody goes through that. My, my son didn't want to go through that. I'm, he's not about conquering the fear. He just didn't want to do it. And here I am, you know, from making a phone call and telling the teacher, just make him do it. Right. So there you go. Uh, really insightful that like, you know, as somebody who also had a phobia, um, that on the one hand, you can, you know, empathize with him. But on the oh, other definitely. hand, you're like, well, this is what worked for me. Therefore, Correct. it's going to work for him. And right. yeah, phobias are on a spectrum. Um, mm -hmm. You know, what, what worked for you that definitely doesn't work for him. And yeah, right. I mean, like, there are, regardless of you're autistic or not, muscling through it does not always work for everybody. And, right. and I think especially if you're, there were some people who just, you know, they're not comfortable with therapy, maybe they can't afford therapy. So maybe there is that, that part of them that maybe knows how to independently self-regulate um, mm -hmm. by being able to face it. Um, yeah. I mean, that, that is such a fascinating story. So what, 
I guess, okay, so you had said you, you know, just send him up. What mm-hmm. ended up happening? Like, what was Brendan's reaction? Um, oh, he didn't, what he did, did not enjoy it. Do? Yeah, he did right, not so enjoy he, that experience. He still, yeah. he still went up. And then, mm-hmm. uh, and then what, I don't know, like, what was the aftermath? Um, did, did, uh, was, did it sort of ruin his day? You know, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm, te- I'm sure was the teacher put in a position to deal with something that maybe he just didn't know how to deal with. No, I mean, he wasn't to the point where he was non-functioning, but he definitely didn't enjoy that experience. Um, but he was able to, you know, uh, go on through his the next days and the next things that he was going to do. Right. But, you know, he tells me it's like you he, he tell, you made me do that. It's like, yes, <laughs> yes, I did. That was bad. parenting. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing I wonder uh, that would be helpful, um, you know, my mom's always been really big about like having a health journal, you know, being mm-hmm. able to document like on this day, I had these symptoms. And I wonder if uh, if that would be helpful for people with the phobia and the caregivers mm-hmm. who don't have phobias helping them um, just to kind of track like, um, yes, what was a success or, sure. uh, you know, these were the after effects of doing this. So then that way, right. you know, the parent isn't making the assumption like, well, Brendan went up to the top. He did it. And right, 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 Brendan's exactly. like, uh, that wasn't nope. a, an achievement for me. Right. You know, and I think... maybe being able to revisit it together. So then that mm. way there's a little more collaboration. So the parent isn't going to, you know, like you said, having to apologize and feel remorseful for making a decision that just ultimately didn't help. Right. I think um, journaling is a great idea for a couple of reasons. Number one, you're able to um, understand yourself better, right? And and identify the triggers that might lead to it, right? If it's a process, you know, first I felt slightly uncomfortable, then I, and I did this, and I felt more uncomfortable than I did this, and this is the ramifications, and this is how I felt the next day. All of those things in journaling will also help your therapist to understand you better as well. So I love the journaling idea. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, some people with autism, when it comes to journaling, they need a little bit more structure. Um, I'm a very big fan of automatic writing where you're not, you're just, it's a stream of conscious writing process, but some people with autism are like, I can't just look at a blank page and write things down. So, you know, tracking a phobia can be as simple as like on a scale of one to five, where was my anxiety at different stages of the, the phobia Mm -hmm. trigger? And then yes. um, there's there's this great book called How to Heal Your Anxiety When No One Else Can, and it's a mm-hmm. it's an EMDR uh, like body tapping book. But what I love about the book is it has a list of emotions, uh, both positive and negative, and you can do muscle testing. Uh, it's very hard to explain muscle testing over a podcast. It's like something you kind of have to visually show. But um, the author does a really fantastic job of explaining how you do the muscle testing. Uh, but basically you have a list and then you muscle test each word. Um, oh, that makes sense. And yeah. yeah. And, and, and that it can be that simple, you know, mm-hmm. a one sentence description of what the trigger was, how you felt before, during, and after, and then, uh, you know, just listing the right. emotions. And I do think it's important to list the positives and especially doing the muscle testing for the positives. I can't even tell you like when I am, processing a stressful situation and muscle test for positive emotions. I'm shocked sometimes 
that I'm like, oh, I didn't realize that I had this positive feeling brewing in me because the anxiety was just too much. Um, so -hmm. that can really help too. And another thing I was thinking about when you were, you were sharing all of this is children don't have a lot of autonomy. Um, children are really at the whim to adults just forcing them into these positions. You got to eat, you got to go to school. We got to run this errand. Um, you know, I think parents sometimes are just in compromising situations where they're like, we got to do this. And, and, uh, and it, it, it doesn't come from a place of impatience or anger. It's just, sometimes you just have to tell the kid to tough it out because that's just what it is. Um, and so a little kid, uh, is very codependent on their, on their, uh, caregiver to Mm co-regulate them, uh, you know, when going through it. And and a very big part of that co-regulation is like trying to give the parent cues, like, this is scary. I don't want to do this, but maybe the parent isn't getting the cues because they're new or the kid is, you know, doesn't know how to communicate it verbally. And so then there's just this constant frustra- uh, frustration of just being put in that position. Right. Whereas, uh, you know, as an adult, you can make, you know, even if you struggle with the phobia, you're at least still making more autonomous decisions about I'm going to do this so that I'm not able to trigger this. So there, right. there's a very big difference there. Um, you know, going back to my own personal story. So uh, I had chronic nosebleeds as a kid, mm-hmm. and that was a very big part of why I think I got the fear of vomiting. Ironically, mm-hmm. I don't have a fear of blood. Um, but one of the weirdest things was like from age eight to age 16, I would have chronic nosebleeds for up to two to three hours. And talk mm. about like not having autonomy that's, as an eight-year-old. That's pretty scary though. Yeah. Well, because it's like, if you're uncontrollably bleeding for hours, right. uh, mm-hmm. as a little kid, you don't, you don't know how to have that autonomy to cope. You don't know how long it's going right. to go. So mm-hmm. I was just constantly in distress. I, I needed yeah. my, my mom to calm me down and, and co-regulate me. Whereas like mm-hmm. now as an adult, I'm like, you know, if I had a two hour nosebleed, like I might be concerned, but I'm not going to cry over it. I'm just going right. to hold my nose and, and deal right, with right. it. Um, because I have that perspective. Now, the weird mm-hmm. thing was I had no idea what caused these chronic nosebleeds. And then after 16, never had chronic nosebleeds again. I can't even remember the last time I had a nosebleed. And like, whenever I did it maybe lasted two minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that like those circumstantial pieces really play a role. And, and I think when it comes to, um, managing a phobia, I really think it's important for caregivers to teach, uh, children to have a voice. So even if, mm-hmm. even if that, uh, voice is I'm scared and I, I need to avoid. No, that's, that's a great idea. I think that there's, st- there's still an important skill to at least communicate to that person. I'm scared. This is what I'm going to do rather mm-hmm. than a kid just, you know, screaming, having a meltdown, running away, you know, the parent doing damage control. Um, I think that that's so different than a child saying, I am scared. What are we going to do? And then the parent can say, right. oh, well, these are some solutions. And and so that way, uh, the child's right. not in distress. The parent's not in distress. And there's this autonomy and I think the other important piece too, 
is, uh, and this is so important for overcoming a phobia is who's going to be there to help you, you know, um, as an adult, you know, sometimes like some people just need a support person there when they're facing that fear. Um, but then there are other times where like, for me, if I'm going to face my fear of vomiting, I don't want people around. I want to do it by myself. And, and I think that it's important for parents to teach their children to cope with the phobia, with the flexibility of, okay, what can I do to support you? Maybe Mm -hmm. that'll help. And what can you do to cope with it on your own? Right. Um, You know, so then that way it's like, you know, oh, Nicole, if you're going to have a nosebleed for two hours, can you sit in front of the TV with, you know, a Kleenex on your nose and take care of it on your own? Like, are are you calm enough that like, I don't have to hug you. I don't have to hover over you. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's, that's really important. So then that way you're not sucking other people into your anxiety. And, you know, oftentimes parents don't want to do that. Peers certainly don't want to do that. And significant others don't want to do that. So I I do think that it's important um, to find, you know, to to really explore what it means to have autonomy, even if you're not in that place of totally Mm -hmm. being healed from it. For sure. And then, you know, the goal is to build independence. Yeah. So you were talking earlier about, you know, you had a fear of heights and your solution for dealing with the phobia was just to you know, tough it out. So what have you learned? Yeah. So what have you learned facing your fears? And what did you learn about solutions that worked for you that may have worked or not worked for Josh and Brendan? Well, so it's, it's, you know, for me, it's being kind of rational about it, right? So why is this, you know, it's, it's not debilitating for sure, but it's, you know, I'm not going to put myself in a situation where, I'm going to rock a tightrope or something like that. I'm not going to be in situations that amplify that fear just to get over it. You know, I just understand that, you know, so I'm not going to take up rock climbing, for example. Right. So, you know, it's just being rational about it. Um, As it impacts my daily life, then that, then I'll deal with it. But uh, typically it doesn't. So, you know, then it, that kind of translates to um, my kids too, right? Is this, something that is impacting the quality of your life. And if it is, then we need to look at therapy to help you process this, right? So that that's my biggest takeaway from that. You know, when I talk about um, vomiting with my therapist, uh, you know, my therapist norms, like most people are not, they don't like throwing up. They don't like sure. being around people that throw up. And so- right. You know, my therapists have done a really good job to say overcoming a fear of vomiting is not about like enjoying being around somebody who gets sick or enjoying right. being sick yourself. And it, right. and it's not even about like having a good time or, you know, like showing up. It, I think it's it's OK to norm like, OK, like if somebody throws up next to you on a plane, most people are not going to be tremendously comfortable with that. But the biggest difference is. Most people that are uncomfortable or grossed out are not going to have a panic attack. They're not going to, um, they're not going to disrupt their lives um, in order to uh, not, fa- you know, when they when they get faced with that thing. And right. so I think it's really important that overcoming a phobia is not a perfectionist standard. 
You don't mm -hmm. have to be devoid of any emotion when it comes to facing that phobia. It's okay to be uncomfortable, just not anxious. Right. Um, but the ironic thing is like, I've gotten to a point with my phobia where like, I'm weirdly comfortable uh, around okay. people who get sick. Now it's not perfect. Uh, you right. know, I did sit next to somebody on a plane who got motion sick and threw up next to me. Um, but I was like shocked that I was like, oh, I don't I don't really feel any fear. And and I watched her throw up. I heard her throw up um, mm -hmm. and I I didn't feel scared and I didn't feel grossed out. And I right. was telling my therapist about that. And she's like, oh, my God, like, I don't think I could have been comfortable on that. So, so the funny thing is when you overcome a phobia, you actually develop more comfort with that stimuli than maybe the average person would. Mm, interesting. Yeah. All right. Moving on to the classroom, whether you have autism or not, teachers come into the classroom with phobias and they also deal with students that have phobias. Um, Brett, do you have any stories related to this topic? And if so, what were some examples and solutions for addressing them? See, I can't, I can't recall a, a specific situation or a student where they had a phobia that impacted a student in my classroom, right? Other than, you know, going on to the field trip, like I talked about, I mean, that's going to, that's going to bring that up. Otherwise, you know, fear of heights is not, for example, is not going to come up in, in my classroom. So I, I, I thought about this and I can't, I can't recall a particular situation. How about you, Nicole? Aren't, aren't you lucky? One of the major reasons that I was motivated to overcome my phobia was because it was impacting my classroom management. Um, mm -hmm. I made the mistake of uh, now mistake. I my first year of teaching, I was very experimental about being open about different parts of myself. I did tell my right. students I had autism. I did tell them I had a metaphobia, mainly because some kids will feel sick, but they just kind of drag it out until the last minute. And I made it very clear with them, like, if you feel sick, leave. Just like, yes. don't, yeah, don't, for sure. don't ask my permission, please don't. go. Yeah, yeah, exactly. However, what I learned is that some students would pretend to get sick or feel sick. And then There's I'm, you know, that. and then I get triggered and I'm like, God, just go. Right. But then it's all aroused to ditch my class. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> So yes, I know. That, that I was can like, happen. all right, I guess I got to face my fear. Um, that was totally unexpected. And and I will say one of the reasons I wanted to teach high school, I was like, oh, I'm never going to have to deal with kids who get, who vomit in high school. Right. That's not, not true at all. True. Not true. <laughs> I mean, I've never had like a kid throw up in my classroom, but I've heard stories about kids throwing up in other people's classrooms. I've heard kids throwing oh, yeah. up on oh, a locker. Oh, it happens all the time. Yeah, for oh, sure. Oh, it happens. It happens all the time. So I'm just like, yes. it's just this. And if you're going to be a teacher, it's just this inevitable experience. I mean, even when I was in college, uh, I remember like, I don't know, I think a girl got sick from stress, but I remember mm -hmm. her like running out of our classroom with her hand covered over her mouth. And I'm like, geez, like <laughs> it really yeah. does happen everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Um, I think the biggest difference is like the older you get, the more self-aware you are of your body and you will take care of it versus like when you're a kid. That's the hope. You, yes. Yeah. You wait until the as last a, minute. As a classroom teacher, happens. you 
help us figure this out. That'd be great. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, like, I don't think my phobia significantly impacted my teaching, but I will say it, it certainly motivated me to overcome my phobia um, because mm -hmm. I, I, and you know, if I had kids that ditched my class, it wasn't so bad that I lost control of my classroom. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, I didn't want kids to ditch because they knew I had a fear. Um, right. So that that was a big thing that I, I dedicated myself to working on. Um, other than that, um, you know, I, I did have other students that had a metaphobia. Um, you know, there was one predicament where I had a student that I knew had a metaphobia and another student who uh, was stomach sick did not throw mm -hmm. up in my classroom. But I will tell you, that's stressful because sure. you got to take care of two students with two very opposite reactions to vomiting on top of mm -hmm. taking care of yourself and all the other students that are grossed out. So, yes. yeah, that 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 sucked. Um, other than emetophobia, um, really the only story that I have is uh, I did have a student with OCD and a very intense fear of germs. And as far as I know, uh, the student either was not autistic, had undiagnosed autism. I'm not going to put a label on it. What we knew for sure was that he had OCD and an intense fear of germs. Very mm -hmm. similar to what you were saying about your kids, like uh, his hands were just chronically cracked and yeah. uh, blistering because he was just constantly like putting hand sanitizer on, uh, mm -hmm. using wet wipes, washing his hands. Um, and as somebody who is neurodiverse and gets it, I was like, yeah, I'm more than happy to uh, accommodate for you. And accommodation for this particular student was way harder than I thought it was gonna be. Um, and I think a very big part of it was that I didn't understand the psychology of OCD. Um, mm. You know, as teachers, you have like a very basic understanding of what it is. You go into it with that assumption. You try to be supportive. Um, but OCD is very complex. So basically, one of the things he needed was a separate desk to sit away from all the other students. And mm. he wanted to know that he was the only one that was going to sit at that desk, which means oh, as... See as we got throughout the whole classes, day, throughout the whole day, throughout yeah. the whole day. So meaning yeah, yeah. when new students would come in for a different period, I had to guarantee Don't sit that there. nobody yeah. else was going to sit in this one spot. And it basically was an offshoot desk. It was the light table, which sure. that's hard because some kids need to use it. And sometimes, yeah, like, no, absolutely. you know, and, and sometimes you have to be flexible and be like, all right, I'm going to have him sit there. I'm going to sanitize it. And I might not necessarily tell the kid. Um, it sounds cruel, but like, you know, sometimes it's just what you got to do as a teacher. Um, yes. another thing that I noticed is, uh, when, even though he had this clean desk that, um, nobody touched, he would not put any of his projects on the desk. And so if he had a sketchbook, he would literally have the sketchbook prepped, prepped on his hand. He wouldn't even put it in his lap, it was hovering on his hand and he would okay. draw and then, you know, so so I'm like looking at it and I'm like, well, this isn't going to work if we have larger projects. So uh, I had the woodshop teacher cut a masonite board, um, something where uh, he knew that it was a it was an object that was not going to touch his paper. So, you know, it could sit on his desk and then uh, it could sit on his lap. It could, you know, he could I don't know how he could float it with his hand because it was super heavy. But, you know, like. I, I think at that time, I, I 
it's all about observing because like he didn't come up and say, I need this, I need that. He had his own coping tools. Yeah, you're yeah. so it was Trying, to, trying to make to accommodations, say, yes. Exactly. Or I would look at what he did to accommodate himself. And then I would mm-hmm. say, this might be a better way to accommodate. Um, yeah. So so it's not necessarily forcing him like, hey, you need to put it on your desk, but just doing some problem solving with the student about like what's going to work, what's not. Right, right. Um, and then another thing that another accommodation that we did, he did not want to put his artwork on any of the cubbies. Um mm-hmm. I guess I don't blame him, you know, art supplies, eraser, shavings, paper, paint. I don't blame him. So he wanted to store his drawings in the teacher's office. So he knew that, you know, his artwork wouldn't get dirty in the shared cubbies. People wouldn't accidentally touch it. And I was game. Uh, None of this stuff stressed me out. I was like, I'm more than happy to accommodate you. Here's where it got hard. And this was what my big learning curve was was with OCD. The expectations of his phobia changed daily. Mm, Um, So meaning one day he was fine about his drawing being stored in the teacher's office. And then literally the next day he panicked about his drawing being covered with germs in in my office. So my germs, my co-teacher's germs uh, and wanted it to move to another spot. And so what was really tough is, is we'd go out of our way to accommodate for him and he'd right, be right. fine with all of those accommodations, but it wasn't like those accommodations uh, were set in stone. And so it, it, it was literally just like his rules would change. So this yeah. overwhelmed me because, uh, you know, my need for routine structure, order and predictability mm-hmm. And and then on top of that, it's like you're accommodating so many other students with different needs. But um, I felt like this this student was really consuming my attention um, because I I just I just felt like what am I going to do to make him feel comfortable to do his projects? So I was talking to his caseworker about it, and she said that's that's the psychology of OCD. So it, so OCD. You don't consciously make up these expectations of routine, order, uh, rituals. Um, it's just kind of the psychology of the phobia. Um, you know, something gets triggered. It's catastrophizing. Sure. Um, you know, maybe there's a neurodiversity quirk about detail-orientedness or catastrophizing, black and white thinking. And so what I took away from the whole thing is that it was definitely a mental obstacle. and. And I guess I was torn because I didn't want the student to feel like I was, you know, oh, just tough it out and deal with it. Uh, I didn't feel comfortable with that. As somebody who's neurodiverse and has a phobia, I really did not feel comfortable putting him in that position. But I also felt like, why can't this kid just work the accommodations that I've already given him? How do Mm -hmm. I go above and beyond from what I'm already doing for the student? And so I think that's where the the caseworker and I had to have an agreement about like, mm-hmm. we can't enable this fear. We yes. have to give this kid opportunities to just, you know, you self-advocated. This is what mm-hmm. you asked for. You have to give it time to work for you. Um, right. So it's so it's not to say that accommodations, uh, you know, will always work. But I think that, you know, sometimes you got to give accommodations at least a month uh, sure. or two weeks to just 
see like, you know, if it works, because if you're, if you're reinforcing this daily switching, you're just escalating the fear. Um, and right. I, and I do think, you know, as much as I've said, you know, parents shouldn't be too forceful. I do think it's important for parents to say, you got to face it, Sure. you know, stand up, face it head on, even if it's in little chunks, because you don't want to, you right. don't want to be complicit in the avoidance to the point where you're enabling your child. Right. And, and that, I think, that goes to, yeah, that goes I was to gonna the, say, uh, Go ahead. Uh, I'll just say this really quick. I think that teachers can unintentionally enable a phobia as well. I, I think some mm -hmm. part of it is they're trying to show compassion. And another part of it is like they want to take the path of least resistance because they got 29 other kids that they have to support. Right. You're um, managing a classroom. Think, not yeah. Just but one I person. think I think that's why. I mean, I definitely do not think teachers should take the brunt of managing a phobia because, no, uh, you not. know, exposure therapy isn't going to work. And I think usually those are the resources that teachers have. It's either exposure or accommodation, but uh, addressing a phobia at school really comes down to a very close collaboration with the student's caseworker, with a counselor, with the Absolutely. social worker. Um, I mean, I don't know if I would get like the student's administrator involved, but I, well, I, depends, I just, yeah. yeah, I mean, it depends, but I mean, you know, sometimes maybe like if the phobia is so bad that the student doesn't come to school, you know, then maybe that's where an administrator would come in. Um, you know, maybe if relevant, maybe the school nurse would be involved. Sure. Um, but I think that it's important for teachers to remember that uh, they're not going to know everything. We are certainly not expected to be experts, even though I think there's a lot of pressure that we need to right. be experts. But that's why we have people in a school that specialize sure. in mental health obstacles and also Absolutely. specialize in neurodiversity that can directly work with the student and also give tools to the teacher um, to create that supportive place. So, you know, going back to the student, uh, I worked very closely with the caseworker who did a very good job being um, lovingly direct with the student. Uh, sure. I don't want to say that anything I did uh, made him overcome his fear. I think that uh, it was very deep-seated. Uh, I know yeah. the student was seeking outside support. Um, sure. The parents were wonderful. Uh, the parents did a really good job with um, meeting with me ahead of time in person, mm. um, advocating, saying this is what's going on. They, no, that's great. Uh, they welcomed frequent communication. They were mm -hmm. so nice so approachable. The student himself was also like very sweet. Um, it's just phobias are complex and challenging. Yes. Um, and I hate to say it, but it does, it really does take a village um, to support somebody unless they have that, um, that self-determination to make decisions to face that phobia. That's really right. hard for some people. It's hard for adults just as much as it is for kids. Um, so to summarize this, I think the takeaway is that it's important to be sympathetic to the phobia being real and accommodating the students' needs. However, there might come a point where the phobia is just difficult to accommodate for in the classroom, or, uh, not that this has happened directly to me, but sometimes the phobia is disruptive to the learning environment. It impacts. Absolutely. It, it's creating a distraction for the teacher. It's creating a distraction for the students. 
And in that case, the teacher needs to work with counselors, caseworkers, and parents to support the student through exposure therapy at school. Um, right. I think it's important that, you know, um, not to out anybody, but I think if if students around that that one kid with the phobia are like wondering what's going on, like, you know, encourage equity and inclusion, don't tolerate bullying. Um, and, you know, I, I do think it's good to have a conversation um, about the student about like, how can you deal with your phobia in a way that's not going to draw attention from others? Because I'm sure that's the last thing somebody with a phobia wants is like, of course, all eyes on them. So right. yeah, I mean, it's complicated. And, and teachers, it is absolutely okay. It is not your responsibility to help that child face their fear. What is your job is helping them to not let their fear be a barrier to their learning. Right. And so just to, to piggyback on that real quick, we're not therapists. Teachers are not therapists, right? Uh, it, there's a difference between reasonable accommodations in the classroom and unreasonable accommodations. We have 28, 30 plus kids to manage, right? In some cases more. So having reasonable accommodations is the key. And when we're teaching the child, right, this, our goal is independence, right? Our goal is independence. So we're teaching the child you can make reasonable accommodations to your future employer. That's not a problem. Um, if it becomes a daily thing where things are chaotic, then no employer is going to want to retain you. So what we're doing and, and we're, what we're trying to say is that, and I love this idea that parents are coming up ahead of time. I would, I would love that as a teacher. Please tell me, what are, what are some things that your child is struggling with? What has worked in the past? How can I help? This is what I'm willing to do. Right. And then communicating with that parent. And that's that's great. If it gets to be more than that, you know, then then we need other professionals in the building to help with that, because I can't I can't help manage that beyond um, the, the reasonable accommodations. I think that teachers can feel a lot more confident about addressing a phobia if it's like, OK, I heard from the parents, I heard from the counselors. It's like this team reinforcement, because um, sometimes mm. the parents might have more strategies than even the, the school social workers mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or, uh, or the teacher. And then, you know, somebody right. else might be an expert, but the point I'm trying to get at is, uh, even though you can have those resources within a school, you're not going to have those same resources in the workplace. Um, and it's really right. important, um, you know, to see an outside therapist. Uh, I, I think it's important that, especially people with autism should not go into a workplace thinking that uh, neurotypical employees are going to understand the phobia that are going to be kind about it. Uh, you mm -hmm. know, in addition to probably not understanding how your autism reinforces the phobia, um, you know, it, it can be really hard. It can put uh, employers in a position of like decision paralysis or, or they're just, you know, it's kind of like what I was saying earlier, like an employer doesn't want somebody with any sort of personal issue that's going dis right. to disrupt the workplace, whether that be right. they uh, have their other own employees. Things to do, yeah. yeah, whether that be other employees or just the flow of getting important um, projects done. So mm -hmm. do you have any advice to autistic adults struggling with phobias in the workplace or if a phobia presents a barrier to getting a job? Okay, so for the first part of the question, 
Um, I liked what we brought up during this podcast is journaling. I love this idea of journaling. Um, it's so it's such an effective tool because it gets you to reflect. And as you um, acquire some of these points along the way of your life, and you know these are things that you can see, maybe identify what those triggers are, and then use and find ways to mitigate that. The second thing is, you know, work with the therapist that's right for you. We went through a lot of different kinds of therapy. A lot of them are different. Pick the one that, you know, pick a therapist that uses the strategy that works for you. Because often talking through your fears or concerns with a calm, rational person who's in your corner can help you develop concrete steps to overcome phobias. How about you, Nicole? What are your advice? Um, so I'll talk about this in more detail in our next episode, although I feel like I shared at least a third or a quarter of yes. the details I was going to talk about in the podcast. But uh, mm -hmm. I do think it's important to have a goal um, that feels meaningful you, for you to overcome the fear and also uh, motivates you to show up in a way that's powerful. Um, mm -hmm. So for, for example, uh, I was noticing the direct correlation of how my phobia was impacting my classroom management. That motivated mm -hmm. me. It wasn't the primary motivation, um, but I do think it's important to have a goal um, that is going to make you motivated to face those challenges. Um, and that goal needs to be more powerful than the fear itself. Um, mm. And I think if it's related to the job, that's great. Now, that said, um, sometimes a phobia can give you a sense of a work environment that's just not conducive to your needs. And that's especially mm. true for sensory defensive people. So uh, for me, uh, when it comes to my sensory discomforts and my phobia struggles, uh, I did not want to work in a preschool. I did not want to work in an elementary school. I was more comfortable working uh, at a high school, maybe even a middle school. Uh, I just did not want to deal with all the gross germs, right, messiness, right. all that. Um, you know, another thing that I learned If you is, teach elementary school, bless you. Uh, like we could not do that. Nicole well, and I are you know, not elementary school teachers. Yeah. You know, the other thing that I remember, like I'm not a big fan of water parks or now as an adult, I'm not a big fan mm. of water parks. Uh, and mm. I used to work a, a summer special needs job and I, you know, you're partnered with a, a child or a teenager with special needs. And we do all these various field trips where mainly we go to the park, we go to a, a water park, we go to a museum. And I was so grossed out being in a water park. And then like, like people with special needs, like if they sneeze, they're not thinking about wiping their nose sure. or yeah. oh, it was sure. just it like, everywhere. Absolutely. I know I, I just like, it was one of those things where I was like, I'm going to do this for now, but I'm never going to mm -hmm. do it again. And that's okay. Like, right. I'm not going to force myself to go, you know, deal with those struggles. Um, so yeah, I mean like, uh, yeah, but mm -hmm. I, I will also say, you know, sometimes people will seek a job because it gives them an opportunity to face their fears. So I've actually read that some people with emetophobia will, or even like people who have a fear of blood, which I think is mm. uh, hemophobia, something like that. They'll go volunteer mm. at a hospital um, so that they can do like bedpan right. responsibilities. Sure. Um, and, and for them, they like the constant ritual and routine of, of being exposed somewhere. 
That is not for everybody, but more power to you. I personally would not do that, but I I respect people who do. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, as you were talking about earlier, work with a therapist. There's only so much that a workplace can do to accommodate your needs. And, uh, you know, you need to be able to self-manage your phobia to the point where it's not going to be disruptive to the tasks you need to get done. It's not going to be creating a severe inconvenience for other people. And if it is, then maybe take a break from working or work part time so you can really tackle those phobia issues. Mm-hmm. Um, if the phobia is really inhibiting your ability to work, um, you know, as I was kind of saying earlier, it doesn't need to be cured just good enough that the phobia doesn't stop you from, from going to work. Um, you know, right. completely overcoming a phobia takes a decade sometimes, um, mm. sometimes even longer. And so I think that it is really important to talk to a therapist about what's the bare minimum of functioning you need to reach uh, to be able to engage in life, to be able to be employed so that the phobia isn't holding you back, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, or what are your coping mechanisms if you, you do face that phobia? And again, like, that's where it comes back to like some jobs are great, some jobs are not, because if you if you work a job where maybe you didn't know you were constantly going to get triggered, mm-hmm. that's, you know, you're not going to be able to show up from a place of power if you're constantly getting that exposure. Right. Um, you know, build a window of tolerance and have a toolbox of sensory soothing strategies when the phobia triggers do come up. Um, it's very important to have a positive mindset rather than a victim mindset, which, you know, obviously is easier said than done. Um, that can mm-hmm. take a very long time and multiple different approaches to overcome a fear. But the victim mindset is all about how the phobia controls you. The phobia makes right. you unsafe. The phobia compromises your life. Um, I remember I had a therapist uh, when I was telling her, like, I have a metaphobia. And she'll say, don't talk about it that way, because if you say you have it, then it creates this emotional attachment. And so she was trying to help me rephrase my language. So there was this intention of like non-attachment that came with it. So so definitely the language of how we think about our phobia, how we talk about Mm -hmm. our phobia, how we communicate about our phobia when we're in distress has a very big impact on how we show up and and face it. Um, yeah. You know, if you're undiagnosed, getting an autism diagnosis or, you know, doing a self-assessment can give context for therapeutic support to overcome a phobia. Um, mm-hmm. I will add that I don't think, med- I don't take medication to overcome my phobia, um, but I do think that medication has allowed me to build the window of tolerance for me to face my phobia. And that has included, um, you know, medication specifically for nervous system regulation and also anti-anxiety mm. medication. Um, and yeah. I've talked about this a lot before, you know, meet other people that have the same phobia and are talking about solutions on the internet. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Honestly, if if somebody else gives you a really good strategy, that's more power for you to be able to accommodate and uh, advocate for yourself in the workplace. Um, but, you know, it, I would say accommodating for a phobia 
is very similar to accommodating uh, for autism. You yeah. need to be self-aware of what your strengths and struggles are, what you can and can't handle, and whatever you cannot handle, you need to be prepared for requesting accommodations. I don't think you even need to disclose to your employer that you have a phobia. I certainly have because I'm an open book, but some people, you know, don't feel the need to. Some people are scared of being judged if they share it. Um, but yeah, again, it depends on what the phobia is. Yeah. 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 And, um, you know, I think that if you're able to contextualize, I have this phobia, here's how it's related to my autism. Here's how the accommodation helps. This is where I need your support. Um, the more right. that you break it down, the more that you have structure for your employer, uh, and the less mental and emotional work that the employer is doing to support you, the better off both of you are going to be. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. All right. We have come to the end of this episode. So we've talked about what phobias are, the causes of phobias and how they relate to autism. Um, categories. We talked about some categories of phobias. We talked about how people cope with them. And we've talked about how to overcome a phobia if you have autism. So our next episode is autism and emetophobia, fear of vomiting. Yeah. Autism on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to receive updates on our upcoming podcast episodes. I also make artwork and poetry to promote each episode. Subscribe to Understanding Autism on YouTube and listen to us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, etc. Like, subscribe, and leave a comment. And if you have questions for us, post them on our Facebook group or email us at Brett and Nicole at understandingautism.info. All right. Thank you for tuning in. And we will see you next week. Until then, I'm Brett Thayer. And I'm Nicole Cabellas.